I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the July 18th, 2022 issue, Season 2, Episode 9. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but to reflect carefully about how all this new information ties in with everything we've come to learn in the past, and we'll think carefully about where we're heading in the future as a hair loss community. I'll use various studies each week as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The third Monday of each month is dedicated to the subject area of scarring alopecia, and today we'll review seven studies from the past month or two in the area of scarring alopecia. I'll begin by talking about an interesting study from Iran addressing isotretinoin and finasteride in the treatment of frontal fibrosing alopecia. This was a very nice study by Rockney and colleagues published in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology in June, which was a randomized controlled trial of 31 patients with FFA, or frontal fibrosing alopecia, comparing isotretinoin to finasteride. What you'll see is after three months, results were pretty similar. We'll review together a very important study which serves as background by Rakowska and colleagues, published in 2017. Then we'll go on to talk about eyelash loss in frontal fibrosing alopecia, and an important study published in JAD in July, the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. That was a study of 50 patients. Eyelash loss was identified in 34% of participants. But when you used your trichoscope, eyelash changes were noticed in 64% of patients. We'll review an interesting association between facial papules and eyelash loss. Then we'll go on to look at an important study of quality of life in frontal fibrosing alopecia, a study in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology in June looking at 49 patients with frontal fibrosing alopecia. The authors used the Dermatology Quality Life Index, DLQI, short form 36, as well as evaluating the FFA Severity Index. And they found that about 53% of patients with FFA had mild changes in quality of life, but there was no association between severity of FFA and quality of life. And this is very consistent with prior studies that we'll review together. And we'll go on to look at study 10 in the medical literature of male FFA. There have been 10 studies to date addressing this subject. About 92 to 98% of patients with FFA are female, but a small percentage are male. And this subject area is important because FFA in males is undoubtedly increasing. So this was a study of... Patients with FFA treated with oral minoxidil and 5-alpha reductase inhibitors like finasteride and dutasteride, two-thirds of patients stabilized after six months of treatment. And we'll take a look at that important study. 
Then we'll go on to talk about lichen planopilaris prevalence and incidence. Really important study. A study by Lim in the Journal of Dermatology in June 2022 looked at the incidence and prevalence of lichen planopilaris. What's so important here is the author showed that there was a six-fold increase in the incidence and prevalence of FFA and LPP over a 17-year study period. And another important study by Joshi and colleagues in JAD International in June tried to calculate the prevalence of lichen planopilaris. They put the number as 1 in 2,325. And we'll use these two studies by Lim and Joshi to look back at very important work from New York, which was the first attempt in 2021 to calculate the incidence and prevalence of LPP. And we'll look at a study published uh, in those two areas. Then we'll go on to look at quality of life in CCCA. A study by Moranga and colleagues in the British Journal of Dermatology in June looked at quality of life issues in 56 patients. We'll take a look at this important study and we'll review a study in 2018 as well, published in CUTIS, looking at some important quality of life measures in women with CCCA. And I hope you'll come to realize just how much of an impact CCCA as well as scarring alopecia has on patients affected by these conditions. The references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany the episode. So let's begin then by talking about a study comparing isotretinoin and finasteride in frontal fibrosing alopecia. This was a study by Rockney and colleagues in June in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology. There's a number of treatments that are helpful for FFA. I don't think it's well recognized around the world that there's some pretty good evidence in terms of how we should structure these treatments. It's, it's not a guessing game. We're not effective in all patients with FFA, but it's certainly not a guessing game. And in my clinic, finasteride, dutasteride, isotretinoin, acetretin are at the top of the list of the most effective treatments for FFA. That doesn't mean we use these in all patients. That doesn't mean they're effective in all patients. That doesn't mean all patients can tolerate these. This doesn't mean that all patients should be started on these, but they are the most consistently effective treatments for FFA. There's been very few studies that have actually compared treatments. And as we'll see in just a minute, there are very few studies in our hair medicine literature that are randomized controlled trials. But there's certainly very few studies that compare isotretinoin with 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. These are, in my view, the first-line agents for FFA or the gold medal treatments in FFA. A very nice study by Rokowska and colleagues in 2017 did set out to compare isotretinoin and finasteride in FFA. That was a study in the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology of 54 patients. That study compared 29 women who were treated with isotretinoin at 20 milligrams, 11 women treated with 20 milligrams acetretin, and 14 patients treated with oral finasteride, 5 milligrams. 
That 2017 study showed that isotretinoin halted FFA in 76% of patients, acetretin halted disease in 73% of patients, and finasteride was runner-up halting disease in 43% of patients. I really liked this study. I thought this study was really important to position isotretinoin and acetretin at the top of the list right there with finasteride. And one can debate, one can argue whether finasteride is more effective, whether dutasteride is more effective, whether the retinoids, acetretin, isotretinoin are more effective. But it's important not to miss the point that they're both effective and they're both right there at the top of the list. And they both are medalists standing on the podium claiming their position as effective treatments for FFA. But that was a really nice study by Rakowska and colleagues. So a new study by Rockney and colleagues in 2022 again set out to address the issue of whether finasteride is better than isotretinoin or whether isotretinoin is better than finasteride, or whether the two are similar. And here we have a study design that we rarely see. A multi-center, randomized, controlled trial. A randomized, controlled trial of 31 patients with FFA seen over a period 2018 to 2020. Patients were randomly divided into two groups, 16 patients received isotretinoin 20 milligrams and topical tacrolimus twice daily. 15 patients received finasteride 5 milligrams and topical tacrolimus twice daily. Patients were followed for 12 weeks with evaluation every month. Patients were asked how they thought they were doing. Physicians were asked to evaluate how they thought patients were doing at month one, month two, month three. And serial photography and serial evaluation was done. There was 31 patients, as I mentioned, 29 females, two males. The mean age was very similar, 39 in the isotretinoin group, 41 in the finasteride group. The mean disease duration was about 21 months, so almost two years in both groups. At four weeks, physicians thought that the isotretinoin group did slightly better than the finasteride group, but it barely met statistical significance. So they were slightly better, but it barely made the cutoff. But at 12 weeks, there was no clear difference between finasteride and isotretinoin. And patient satisfaction was not different at week 12 either. So I think this is a really helpful study. It's an interesting study for those of you who are rooting for one treatment over another. This study leaves us a bit disappointed because we can't say isotretinoin is better than finasteride. We can't say finasteride is better than isotretinoin, at least not in this small study. The reality is this study has fairly limited follow-up period, just three months, and it's a relatively small study, 31 patients. Nevertheless, it, it keeps finasteride and isotretinoin right up there at the top of the lists. It really doesn't alter my view about the hierarchy of treatments. Finasteride and isotretinoin are, are right up there. After one month, it seems isotretinoin might be a little better, but that kind of doesn't continue to hold its position at month three. The reality is, is that I really want to know how my patients are doing at 
month three, month 10, month 22, year two, year five, year 10. And so I'm not too bothered that finasteride and isotretinoin seem different at month one. What I really want to know is how they're doing in the long run. And the follow-up here is quite short. So it's difficult to really know if these treatments continue to have good effect in the long run, but at least at three months, there's data here to suggest they're similar. There is data in the literature that suggests that some treatments start losing effect. There's data in the literature that suggests that maybe, just maybe, doxycycline starts losing effect. Hydroxychloroquine starts losing effect. Finasteride starts losing effect. And so long-term follow-up is really important in these kind of studies with FFA. And long-term follow-up is so important because this disease runs under the radar. This disease can look quiet sometimes when you slap ointments and creams and lotions on the scalp, when you start treatments, when you do steroid injections, it can change from looking pretty active to looking pretty quiet. And photography and measurements are really important because this disease can continue to budge along despite the fact that it looks quiet. So three months of study is a great start, and I commend these authors for this randomized control trial. But we really need longer data, and I really hope that these authors continue to pursue uh, how these patients are doing in longer follow-up. But I commend these authors because they bravely set out to do what so few authors do, and that's these randomized controlled trials. And this is so desperately needed in our field. And I think randomized controlled trials are going to dramatically change what we do in the clinic. And in some areas of hair medicine, we're probably a little bit afraid to do randomized controlled trials because they're going to change the paradigms that we all mistakenly believe, but they're so desperately needed. And this was a, a, a wonderful study of a randomized controlled trial. And so I commend these authors. We continue in the area of FFA looking at eyelash loss. We talk a lot about eyelash loss in alopecia areata. When it comes to FFA, we don't talk a lot about eyelash loss, but eyelash loss is an area that's certainly very important. And as we'll see in a minute, it has prognostic significance. Salas Callow and colleagues published a nice study in JAD in July 2022. This is the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Eyelash loss is so important because of some studies that were done about eight years ago by my esteemed colleague Sergio Vano Galvan in Spain. And his group published a study at that time of 355 patients, which in 2014 was the largest study of FFA. And when that study came out, my thought was, wow, that's fantastic. 355 patients in a collaborative study across Spain. That was unheard of at the time. There have been larger studies since, but that was a really important study in 2014, and Dr. Vano and colleagues showed that eyelash loss was important because it was one of the key prognostic factors associated with severe FFA. If you had eyelash loss, facial papules, and body hair loss, you were more likely to have a more severe form of 
FFA, and that was a study published in JAD back in 2014. And that sort of put eyelashes on the radar as really important for us to study. Of course, they're important to study because when you lose eyelashes, things get in the eyes, eyes get irritated. People don't like to lose their eyelashes. It's of tremendous cosmetic significance. So a new study set out to look at eyelash loss again, but not only clinically, you hover over the patient, you look at whether they have eyelashes or not, but with your trichoscope, you put this magnifying device on the eyelashes and look at what's happening. We don't do a lot of trichoscopic studies in the eyelashes. You know, sometimes we bring our trichoscope to the eyebrows and we look for perifollicular erythema, scale, eyelashes going in different directions, broken hairs. But we very rarely set these little devices on the eye lids to look at the eyelashes. Um, sometimes because it's uncomfortable. Second, we, we feel sometimes that time is of the essence, but we very rarely do because it's a bit more intrusive setting these, the glass of the magnifying device on the eyeball. Of course, the skin is covering it, but um, we very rarely do it. But this study tells us that we probably should be looking at the eyelashes a lot more carefully. So this was a perspective cross-sectional study of 50 patients with FFA. 44 were women, 6 men, average age was 58. None of the patients had any medication to the eyelids or the eyelashes before this study was done. Eyebrow loss was present in 48 patients. Body hair loss was present in 44 patients. But 34% of patients had involvement of the eyelashes clinically, meaning when you stand over them and just look, but when you used your trichoscope, 64% of patients had involvement, so almost a doubling. The most common trichoscopic signs were dystrophic hairs or strange appearing hairs, visualization of the hair bulbs, black dots, and ingrown hairs. Visualization of the hair bulbs was more common in the upper eyelashes, and focal atrichia, or areas where there's no eyelashes, was more common in the lower eyelashes. Trichoscopic changes were observed in all patients that had clinical changes, and patients that had severe clinical involvement, so more eyelashes lost, had more trichoscopic signs. One third of patients had eyelashes growing in different directions, and we see this in the eyebrows and it's thought to be due to fibrosis or scarring that's developing in the skin. But this study wasn't set up to determine why a patient's eyelashes grow in different directions. The authors showed that there were ingrown hairs, and this can be found in many scarring alopecias. But there was a significant association between facial papules and eyelash involvement. And that's important because facial papules eyelashes and body hair are these negative prognostic factors, as I talked about from that 2014 study by Dr. Vano. And so I really liked this study. I thought it was really important first looking in detail at trichoscopy of the eyelashes. It appears that about a third of patients have eyelash involvement. That's not all that new. But what is new is the fact that such a high proportion of patients have eyelash involvement when you use your trichoscope. It could be that some of these trichoscopic signs have 
prognostic significance, but we don't really know. That wasn't really what was set out to be studied in detail in here. What's interesting is there's difference between the upper eyelashes and lower eyelashes, and hair specialists like to talk about differences. Hair specialists tend to be splitters, not lumpers, so we tend to think about what's the differences between the upper eyelashes and the lower eyelashes. In trichotillomania, for example, we like to point out that the upper eyelashes are more commonly involved than the lower eyelashes. And in alopecia areata, we like to point out that sometimes the upper eyelashes are more involved than the lower eyelashes, but they both can be involved. But here, visualization of the hair bulbs was more frequent in the upper eyelashes, and focalotrichia was more common in the lower eyelashes. And there was this inter interesting association between eyelash loss and facial papules, and so the two may be linked. The mechanisms that drive facial papules to develop and the mechanisms that drive eyelashes to be lost may in fact be somewhat similar. So I think this was a really nice study and um, I commend the authors for doing this meticulous work looking at eyelashes. So we stay on FFA looking at now quality of life. A nice study from Iran by Varge and colleagues published in the June issue online of the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology. And before we talk about this study by Varge and colleagues, it's important to rewind the tape and look at 2018 by a study by Cicada Corallo and colleagues from Spain looking at quality of life in FFA. This was one of the earliest studies, good studies of FFA quality of life. So let's take a look at that first, and then we'll come back to Varge and colleagues. So that study in 2018 by Cicada Corallo used the Dermatology Quality Life Index, DLQI, as well as the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale, HADS, to look at FFA quality of life. These are important scales. In that study, the DLQI was 2 overall, but the author showed that about 42% of FFA patients really didn't have much impairment of quality of life. 42% had mild impairment. So the vast majority of patients had either no impairment or mild impairment. But what's it, what is important is that 12% had moderate impairment of quality of life and 5% had severe impairment of quality of life. So there are a proportion of patients, one in six, that are going to be pretty significantly affected by their FFA. 19% of patients had moderate to severe anxiety. 6% had moderate to severe depression. And what's so important here is that the study did not find any association between severity of a hair loss and quality of life. And I think that's really important. We'll come back to that in a minute. But many, many studies in our field don't show a lot of clear correlations between severity of hair loss and quality of life. And we think that it should intuitively, if you have more hair loss, your life should be affected more. But study after study tell us that mm, that doesn't seem to be the case. Study after study tell us in alopecia areata that if you're going to measure the number of hairs on the scalp and think that more hair loss means more severe qual quality of life impairment, you're going to be surprised. And so those two don't tie together as directly as we sometimes think they should. 
This study by Vargay and colleagues from Iran set out to look at quality of life in FFA again. 49 patients were included in this study. They used the FFA severity index to look at how much hair loss the patient had, a scale from 0 to 100. They used the dermatology quality of life index again, a scale from 0 to 30, and the short form 36 questionnaire, a scale from 1, uh, 0 to 100. So the DLQI is this self-reported measure of quality of life. Patients tick off boxes, sit in the waiting room, and, and indicate how much they're affected by this condition. And we use the DLQI in lots of different dermatologic conditions. It ranges from 0 to 30, and higher scores mean more impairment in quality of life. And the DLQI looks at symptoms and feelings, daily activities, impairment of leisure, impairment of work and school, personal relationships, and whether the treatments that you do every day impact your life. And a score of 0 to 1 means no impairment or not much at all. 2 to 5 means a mild, uh, a low effect overall. 6 to 10 is a moderate effect. And 11 to 20 is a high effect. And 20 to 30 is an extreme effect. 21 to 30 is an extreme effect. The short form 36 is another scale that researchers often use to look at how much impact a disease has or a condition has. It contains 36 questions, which look at eight domains, limitations in physical activity, limitations in social activity, limitations in roles, mental health changes, emotional changes, energy and fatigue, and general health perception changes. The SF36 ranges from 0 to 100, with 0 being worst health and 100 being the best possible health. So high scores in the SF36 are good. High scores in the DLQI are bad. And the frontal 5 browsing alopecia severity index is a relatively new index from 0 to 100, with scores that are higher representing more severe FFA. So this was a study of 49 patients with FFA. The age range was 30 to 65 with a mean of around 46 years. The frontal fibrosing alopecia severity index in these patients was a mean of 34. The DLQI ranged from 0 to 11 with the mean score being around 2, which is a low effect overall. About 53% of patients were negatively affected by the FFA they had. But in the vast majority of patients, it was a low effect. The SF36 scores ranged from 24 to 95, again, 100 being best possible health, and the mean score was 71. And what was so important in this study is there was no significant association between the DLQI scores, the SF36, and age, duration of hair loss, gender, marital status, educational status, whether they received medicine, and their FFA severity index. And so that's really important. Again, just like the Cicada Corallo study, this study by Varga did not find any association between the severity of alopecia and the quality of life impairment. So I think that's really important. There was a relationship between quality of life 
and the presence of facial papules. That was one significant association that was identified. And there was an impairment of dermatology quality of life index scores and those with nail involvement or limb involvement. And so I think this is, a, again, a, a nice study looking at quality of life in FFA. There are a significant proportion of patients that are affected by FFA, but fortunately in the vast majority of patients, it tends to be on the lower end of impairment. Again, severity does not correlate with quality of life. I think that's really important. It again reminds us that we need to be careful as hair specialists when we evaluate patients. We see a patient with a little bit of hair loss and we assume that they should be just a little bit affected by their hair loss. Patient in room two has a lot of hair loss and we think they should be affected a lot. It doesn't work that way in a lot of hair loss. That human beings have you know different perceptions about what hair means to them. Some patients with small amounts of hair loss are dramatically affected. Some patients with more hair loss are less affected. There are other parameters in their life which affect how patients are affected. But this study did show that facial papules really do impact on quality of life, and so does nail involvement and limb hair involvement. So I think these are important associations for us to all be aware of, and certainly we need more studies in this area evaluating quality of life. So finally, we look at a study of FFA in males, and this is study number 10 in the accumulating literature of male FFA, a study by Musa and colleagues in the International Journal of Dermatology in June 2022. So authors from Australia set out to evaluate the clinical characteristics and response to treatment in men with FFA. It was a retrospective study over a 10-year period, 2011 2021. There were 13 patients in this study. The mean age of disease was about 41 years. That was the age of onset of the disease. All 13 patients had hair loss in the hairline. And consistent with other studies, there was beard hair loss, sideburn hair loss, and eyebrow hair loss in a very significant proportion of patients. And I think this is really important because the literature really teaches us that FFA in males not only affects the hairline, but it affects eyebrows, beard, and sideburns. 15% of patients had eyelashes lost. That was probably eyelash loss. Clinically, as we saw earlier, we probably need to put our trichoscopes on the eyelashes to get a sense of involvement of the eyelashes because it might be higher. But nevertheless, 15% had eyelash loss. 38% had scalp itching, and 15% or two cases had trichodynia, or these significant scalp symptoms of burning and pain and tenderness. 61% of patients had perifollicular erythema, and about 70% had follicular hyperkeratosis. I think it's important in these studies of perifollicular erythema and scale to, to really point out where that scaling is. When you look at the frontal hairline, you're going to see scale in a large percentage of patients and erythema. But when you move your trichoscope down to the sideburns, you often don't see scale and erythema to the, to the same degree. And so I think all FFA studies really need to point out where they're looking when they say, I saw perifollicular erythema in eight patients. 
we should really preface that by saying I saw perifollicular erythema in eight patients in the frontal hairline, two centimeters to the right of midline. I think that's missing in our literature, but nevertheless, uh, clearly a large percentage of patients have erythema and scale. Facial papules was seen, were seen in 38% of patients. Rosacea was present in about one-third of patients, and about a quarter of patients had androgenetic hair loss as well. And the mean duration of follow-up was about two years. So now we come to some of the key things in this paper. All patients were treated with oral minoxidil, all 13 patients. Doses ranged from a quarter of a milligram to 10 milligrams. The mean dose was two milligrams. And 12 of the 13 patients, so almost all of them, were also treated with a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor orally. In seven patients, that was finasteride at doses 0.25 to one milligrams. And in five cases, that was dutasteride at doses from a half a milligram to a quarter of a milligram. Four patients were treated with clobetazole, and other patients were treated with cyclosporin, minocycline, and topical tacrolimus. 61% of patients had their disease stabilized after a mean duration of six months of follow-up, and there was an increased hair density in two patients, and those were the patients that had androgenetic hair loss. There was no adverse side effects of treatment during that follow-up period. So I think this is an interesting study. It's study 10 in this accumulating literature of male FFA, and this study by Musa and colleagues certainly finds a spot in the literature of male FFA. I like this study. It highlights, again, how common beard hair loss is, eyebrow hair loss, and uh, um, sideburn hair loss is. It's difficult in this study to determine whether the improvement that was seen or the stabilization that was seen is attributed to oral minoxidil or finasteride because patients receive these drugs at the same time. And so it's not clear whether oral minoxidil is really worth adding or not. I think the authors try to make a point that two-thirds of patients stabilized and their protocol of oral minoxidil and finasteride is a pretty good one to consider. I think we can really conclude that in this study because the study wasn't designed to determine the individual effects of oral finasteride or oral minoxidil, which one of the two are really helping. But nevertheless, two-thirds of patients had stabilization, which is really wonderful. When you look carefully at this paper, there's a hint, just a hint, that perhaps stabilization occurs faster with dutasteride where responders stabilized at about three to four months time point, whereas finasteride users stabilized more towards six to seven months. But the numbers are small. We can't really read into that too much, but I thought that was interesting when you actually dig into the data. I think those are areas for further study. When you look at all the FFA literature in men and women that have been published to date, mm, there's a hint that dutasteride may be the winner over finasteride. We need better studies, yes, but there is a hint of that. So I think we need to keep that in mind. And this study had a hint of that as well when you actually look at the data. The authors make a point in this study that 
maybe topical minoxidil is not that useful in FFA. And they remind us that there are previous reports of topical minoxidil monotherapy that seem to indicate not that much benefit. But when you actually look at the studies of topical minoxidil and the studies that the authors reference in this paper, especially a study by Gamrit in 2019, you see comments like this, quote, Based on these findings, it's reasonable to conclude that topical minoxidil may be most beneficial when combined with other therapies in the treatment of FFA and when there is a condition of mixed FFA and androgenetic hair loss, which is common, end quote. And so I think that was helpful to review because the reality is, is that I don't think we have enough evidence to throw topical minoxidil in the garbage when we're treating FFA. We don't really have good enough data. There is a hint that maybe it does something when combined with other treatments. The reality in this study by Musa and colleagues is we don't really have good evidence that oral minoxidil monotherapy would be all that helpful because in this study it was combined with topical with um, oral finasteride. Just like all the studies that combine minoxidil topically with various treatments, this study combined oral minoxidil with other treatments. So we can't really say oral minoxidil is deserving the credit that it seems to get in this paper because it's combined with other treatments. I think oral minoxidil is probably helpful, but I think we have to be careful because this study wasn't designed to evaluate the effect of oral minoxidil in isolation. But what the study did point out is that if you're not getting two-thirds of your patients with FFA stabilized, you're probably not using the right treatments because that should be the, the number that we have. And this study suggests two-thirds, you know, studies from almost 10 years ago suggests that a good proportion of patients should stabilize and, and some patients should improve. The 2014 Van O'Galvan study suggested that with antiandrogens, half of our patients should stabilize and half of our patients should improve. Not all studies have shown such good results, but I think the point here is that a good proportion of patients with FFA should stabilize and we should expect some outcomes of improvement. This is a very nice study. Two-thirds of patients have improvement. What happens over 10 years, 20 years, we do not know. Those long-term studies have not been done. How do we best treat the other one-third of patients that don't have improvement and don't have stability? That is less clear. How should we be treating these patients? Should patients that don't respond to finasteride be switched to dutasteride? Probably. Do patients that don't respond to finasteride or dutasteride be switched to something like isotretinoin? Probably. Do patients that don't respond be, you know, started on drugs like hydroxychloroquine? Hard to know. Cyclosporin? Maybe. Apremolast? Who knows? I think there's a lot of room for improvement in our treatment, and there is a proportion of patients that don't get these good responses. And I think we 
need to figure out how best to treat those patients as well. So from FFA, let's move to lichen planopilaris and two absolutely fascinating studies looking at the incidence and prevalence of FFA and, and uh, LPP. So first, a study by Lim and colleagues in the Journal of Dermatology from Japan in June 2022. And then we'll go on to a study in JAD International. But before we talk about incidence and prevalence of lichen planopilaris, it is critical for you to know about landmark studies in the JAD in 2021 by Trager and colleagues looking at prevalence of FFA and LPP and studies in the Dermatology Online Journal in 2021 by the same group, this time by Lavian and colleagues looking at the incidence of LPP and FFA. So first, let's take a look at those studies in 2021. Those are very, very important studies for us to know about well-done studies that lay the groundwork for these next studies. So Trager and colleagues was a study which looked at the prevalence of LPP and FFA in New York. They looked at patients over the period 2015 to 2018 and compared some 376 patients with LPP and FFA to a million controls. The prevalence of LPP was put at 1 in 5,882, and the prevalence of FFA was put at 1 in 6,666. So that's really important. You know, but 1 in 6,000 patients out there or people out there have these diseases based on their estimate. Lavian and colleagues looked at incidence. So not only the total cases... But how many new cases of LPP and FFA get diagnosed each year? They again dove into their New York databases and they had 94 LPP patients and 76 FFA patients in the year 2018. So looking at incidence. And they calculated that LPP had an incidence of 1 in 13,000 new cases and FFA had an incidence of 1 in 18,000 new cases in that year. So they're not looking at prevalence, but incidence, new cases, brand new diagnoses. So those are the fundamental groundwork studies that now lay the basis for our next studies. So Lim and colleagues in the Journal of Dermatology looked at Korean data. They used the National Health Insurance Service database in Korea, or the NHIS. It's operated by the Korean government and includes about 99% of the Korean population. So again, a wonderful database to look at. They looked at ICD codes for lichen planopilaris in that database, the L66.1 codes. Presumably, when they talk about lichen planopilaris in this study, they're talking about LPP and FFA together because they both likely receive the same ICD-L66.1 code. And the incidence and prevalence of LPP were calculated over a 2003 to 2019 17-year study period. So they had a total of 3,000 patients with LPP, and they matched them to 59,000, almost 60,000 controls. There was a slight female 
predominance of LPP, and again, LPP mixed with FFA. Here is the absolutely fascinating data. The incidence of LPP and FFA rose from one in a million in 2006 to six in a million in 2019, a six-fold increase. And the prevalence rose by six-fold from two in a million in 2006 to about 12 in a million in 2019. So a six-fold increase in incidence and prevalence of these conditions over that time period. It's kind of difficult in this study to get a true sense of data, but it appears that about 1 in 20,000 people in Korea are affected by these two scarring alopecias. And they are on the rise. What was really interesting in this study is it seems that the peak incidence increases in summertime and another spike in around November. And the incidence is higher in urban areas than rural areas. I thought that was really fascinating. We're seeing that kind of trend in a lot of these autoimmune diseases. The study from the UK database for alopecia areata suggests that if you live in the big cities, you're more likely to have alopecia areata than if you live in the rural areas. And this data seems to be holding true for scarring alopecia in Korea. This study also looked very nicely at comorbidities. What diseases are associated with LPP and FFA? Well, atopic dermatitis has a twofold increased risk. There's an increased risk of allergic rhinitis, asthma, connective tissue diseases, hypothyroidism, vitamin D deficiency is increased almost fourfold, and rosacea is increased almost fourfold, about 3.5-fold for each. So this is a really interesting study. So we don't know if these patients truly had LPP or whether they were misdiagnosed because they're simply looking at codes in a computer database so that they weren't verified. But we assume if they punch in LPP and FFA or the L60, uh, the L code, the ICD-10 code in the database that they have that diagnosis. But it's not clear as well whether these cases are mostly FFA or mostly LPP or a mix of the two because presumably the same code was used for both. And, it, and the authors didn't really clarify in that study. There's a dramatic increase in LPP and FFA incidence and prevalence over that time period. I think that's absolutely fascinating. A six-fold increased risk over that time period. What was really interesting in this study is a large percentage of patients were teenagers. In most of our North American studies, LPP is a disease of 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, and FFA is a disease of 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds. And certainly in my clinic, I do see FFA, I do see LPP in teenagers, but not that commonly. And in my clinic, LPP is probably 20 times more common, maybe even 30 times more common in an adult than in a teenager. But in this study, it was quite common in teenaged patients. I think that in and of itself is fascinating and needs more study. Who are these patients in Korea 
these teenagers that are being diagnosed with LPP. Are they androgenetic hair loss, which is misdiagnosed as LPP based on perifollicular fibrosis and perifollicular inflammation in the infundibulum? I don't know, but it's curious. The seasonal change is absolutely fascinating. They're picking up higher incidence in the summertime. It's not clear if this is a real effect or a confounder. If you're making more diagnoses in the summertime, is it because a patient actually develops their LPP in the wintertime, but it takes six months to get into clinic? Is it that nobody goes to clinic in the summer in the wintertime because it's too hard to get to clinic and everybody floods to the clinic in the summertime? I don't think it's clear in this particular study. I'd be curious to know in this study, what does the higher incidence in the summertime mean? Is it a true effect or is it a volume effect? And are these patients that are truly developing their symptoms in the summer or are they just getting diagnosed in the clinic in the summer? It would appear that they're being diagnosed in the clinic in the summer because that's when the entry goes into the computer. So I think we need that clarified. But it's certainly fascinating that there seems to be an increased incidence of LPP in the big cities compared to rural areas. Why is this occurring? I don't know. I think when we have these changes, we always say it's because of pollution, it's because of noise, it's because of stress. These are guesses. We don't know. But they certainly sound like good hypotheses and they need more, more studies. But it seems that LPP and FFA are probably a little less common in Korea than in the USA. In New York, it appears that the incidence is about 12 new cases per million. And in Korea, it's about six new cases per million. So about half the number. These prevalence and incidence studies are really hard to do. So, you know, these are just best guesses. But uh, nevertheless, LPP and FFA are on the rise in Korea. And this is a wonderful study. Another really nice study by Joshi and colleagues uh, looks at U.S. data. This is data from JAD International in June. Authors from Baylor looked at the LPP prevalence in a nationwide cohort. So not only a study of New York, but a nationwide cohort. And I think these national type studies are really important. They looked at this brand new database called the All of Us Database, which is a database launched by the NIH or the National Institutes of Health. The authors again used LPP codes, the ICD L66.1 code, which is for lichen plano pilaris, which presumably includes frontal fibrosing alopecia. So the All of Us Database has 327,000 participants as of March 2022. They identified 142 LPP patients in that new database. And so they calculated that the LPP prevalence is about 0.043%, or about 1 in 2,325 people have LPP out there in the United States. The average age of diagnosis was 62. In this database, 91% of patients with LPP were female. So I think that's interesting because you know, probably not 91% of patients with LPP are female. So this database is skewed towards female patients and female entries into that database. Nevertheless, it's, it's the best we have. And these databases, when you try to harvest data, yes, they're subject to all sorts of limitations, but it's the, the best we have and how we harness this. If you want to know the prevalence of LPP 
in the United States of America. You have to go around and ask all 360 million people door to door, do you have LPP? That's pretty difficult to do. If you want to know the prevalence of LPP in Canada, you have to knock door to door on all 36 million Canadian residents. That just doesn't get done. So you have to look at databases as your best estimate. And so these are studies are hard to do, but they give us kind of an indication. In this study, the prevalence was highest in age 65 to 74, where the prevalence was around 1 in 1,000. And the prevalence in 55 to 64-year-old age groups was around 1 in 1,800 or 1,850. Prevalence was around 1 in 1,800 in white patients, around 1 in 3,500 or 1 in 3,500 in black individuals, 1 in 5,000 in Hispanic individuals, and 1 in 11,000 in patients of Asian background. So I think this is an, a very interesting study. We now have this Trager et al. study in 2021, this Levian et al. study in 2021, this Lim et al. study, and now we have this new study by Joshi looking at LPP prevalence. These are hard studies to do. They make a lot of assumptions. They use databases that really it's not clear if they're comprehensive or not, but the, it's the best that we have. This particular study doesn't attempt to separate LPP and FFA like the um, Trager et al. study and the Levian et al. study. And so presumably the same ICD codes are used for LPP and FFA. Nevertheless, it gives us some idea. And in this study by Joshi, it hints that LPP might be about 1 in 2,300 people. The Trager study suggests that LPP is about 1 in 5,882. And so I like this Joshi study because it puts out a number for us. Who knows if it's right? Nobody knows with these kind of studies. But I really do think that lichen planopilaris is more common out there in the real world in North America than 1 in 6,000. Is it 1 in 2,000? Who knows? But I think that's getting closer to the real prevalence. And so I really liked that number. Um, again, these are best guesses. You're making these guesses based on 142 patients with the disease. So you tell me how reliable that is. It's somewhat reliable, but um, you're not going door to door knocking on all the doors of 350 million American citizens. But it's a pretty good estimate. Um, that's one in 2,000 people out there might have lichen plano pilaris. I think that's closer to the real number. I think there's a large number of people that are not diagnosed with LPP with subtle cases of itching and burning in the scalp that they get told it's seborrheic dermatitis, um, that they have LPP for a few years, then it burns out and patients say, you know, I was pretty itchy when I was 38 years old and then it kind of settled and well, I lost hair, but I don't know. So I think there's a lot of those kind of cases out there that we just don't pick up, but another prevalence study of LPP, and I commend the authors for these studies, and the previous authors in the New York studies, um, Trager et al. and Levian et al., those are wonderful studies. Finally, a study looking at quality of life in CCCA or central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia. 
Moringa and colleagues published a study in the British Journal of Dermatology in June looking at quality of life in CCCA. A very nice study, and it builds on another very nice study by Akintilo and colleagues in CUTIS in 2018. And if you're not familiar with Akintilo et al., you should look it up. It's free, CUTIS 2018, titled Healthcare Barriers and Quality of Life in Central Centrifugal Cicatricial Alopecia. That study was really important because it taught us what features are important to patients with CCCA in their evaluations. What did they look for in providers? What proportion of providers are examining the scalp? What proportion of providers are, you know, doing good workups in CCCA patients? The data is pretty surprising and pretty disappointing, actually, but it tells us we have room for improvement. But when you look at that data in CUTIS in 2018, you see very clearly how much CCCA or the scarring alopecia in black women affects quality of life. A large percentage of patients, you know, almost vast majority, indicate that CCCA has a major factor in their appearance. 88% say their hair loss bothers them. 82% agree that they feel embarrassed, self-conscious, or frustrated about their hair loss. Three-quarters believe that their hair forms a major expression of how they feel about themselves. 68% feel anxious or worried about their hair loss. A half feel less attractive because of their hair loss. A half feel less confident. And a half believe their hair loss is a handicap. And about a third feel old because of their hair loss. So CCCA has a major impact on how people feel about themselves. This was the study 2018 in CUTIS. Do check it out. It's a really nice study. Very clear. The messages are very clear that CCCA impacts people, and many patients feel that they're not given the quality of care that they need. So we have a new study in June in the BJD, the British Journal of Dermatology by Moranga and colleagues, looking at quality of life, titled Quality of Life in Patients with Central Centrifugal Cicatricial Alopecia, a preliminary study. So it was a study of 56 patients, 98% were women, CCCA was found to have a major impact on quality of life in various domains, including subjective symptoms, objective signs, and to a lesser extent on relationships. So subjective symptoms included feeling sad, worrying, worrying that the disease might spread. Objective symptoms included noticing the scalp was visible, noticing hair loss when the scalp is shampooed. What was really interesting here in this Moranga and colleague studies is that relationship issues were felt to be less prevalent, but did include issues like feeling embarrassed around others, having to explain to others what's wrong, and feeling that others will notice. But the authors proposed that in CCCA in this study that subjective symptoms and objective symptoms were what impacted quality of life the most. And there was a much lower number of negative responses in the relationship category. And perhaps these relationships that patients with CCCA form with others have a somewhat protective effect on quality of life impairment. And so I think that's room for further study. But the authors propose that there may be a very important role 
for the connections that patients have with others and larger communities in mitigating the negative effects of this disease. And so overall, the authors conclude that CCCA has a negative impact on quality of life and that we need to be aware of this accumulating data and be sensitive to the negative impact that CCCA has on patients. So that's it for this week. I want to thank you very much for joining me. We reviewed seven studies. We reviewed isotretinoin and finasteride in a randomized controlled trial of 31 patients in FFA, and we showed that they seem pretty similar after three months. We talked about eyelash loss in FFA and the fact that 34% of patients have eyelash loss, but if you use your trichoscope, it seems that number goes up to 64%. And there's an association between facial papules and eyelash loss. We talked about quality of life in FFA, a study from Iran of 49 patients telling us that about 53% of patients have mild effects of their quality of life when they have FFA. And there's no association between severity of FFA and quality of life, again, matching the data from Cicada Corallo in 2018. We looked at study number 10 of male FFA, a study of 13 patients in the International Journal of Dermatology. Two-thirds of patients stabilized with oral antiandrogens and oral minoxidil. What do we do with the other one-third of patients that don't stabilize? These are room for further study. And what really is the benefit of oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil in FFA and scarring alopecia in general? I think we've got a lot of work to do in that area. Then we talked about two much-needed studies of LPP prevalence. Again, generally studies of LPP grouped with FFA, but uh, studies in Korea in the uh, Journal of Dermatology from Japan telling us that lichen plano pilaris is on the rise over this 2003 to 2019 study period. Really important uh, data showing a six-fold increase incidence, rise in incidence and prevalence of lichen plano pilaris. And a study by Joshi and colleagues telling us that maybe, just maybe, the prevalence of lichen plano pilaris in the United States is closer to 1 in 2,325 as opposed to 1 in 6,000 that Trager and colleagues told us last year. We don't know, but I like that study because we're getting numbers. We're getting numbers that we can apply to uh, the patients that we treat and the uh, populations around the world. And a study looking at quality of life in CCCA, we talked about a valuable study from 2018, and now a new study in 2022 by Maranga and colleagues showing us that quality of life is indeed impaired in patients with CCCA, and more studies are needed in this area. You can connect with us anytime by email at info at donovanhairacademy.com. This was the third Monday of the month, and that's the Monday we dedicate to scarring alopecia. We're back next week. That'll be, yes, the fourth Monday of the month, and that is a potpourri of studies published in the last month or two. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here for another episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. <laughs>